This is DW News, live from Berlin. New fears over Russia's military buildup at Ukraine's borders. NATO warns that 30,000 additional Russian troops are headed to Belarus. Moscow says the West is stoking tensions. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz planning talks with Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Also coming up, a major blow to the so-called Islamic State. The United States has says the leader of the IS was taken off the battlefield during a raid by U.S. forces in northwest Syria. Several other people are reported killed during the operation near the Turkish border. Plus, a taste of life after the pandemic. The UK and Denmark lifting coronavirus restrictions in spite of high case numbers. I'm Leila Hawk. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll have a lot more on those stories in just a moment, but we first want to share with you some breaking news coming in. Russia has announced it is banning this network, Deutsche Welle, as a retaliatory move. The foreign ministry said it was closing Deutsche Welle's Moscow bureau and revoking accreditation for our staff there. This is in response to Germany's decision to ban German language programming from Russia's state media broadcaster, RT. We've just heard about this. We'll bring you more as more details emerge. But let's turn our attention now to our top story, the crisis in Ukraine. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is the latest world leader to travel to Kiev in a diplomatic effort to ease tensions. Mr. Erdogan offered to mediate between Russia and Ukraine and has already met his Ukrainian counterpart, Volodymyr Zelensky. The Turkish president has been attempting a tight balancing act by showing diplomatic support to Ukraine while avoiding damaging relations with Russia. The two leaders are expected to sign an agreement to manufacture Turkish drones in Ukraine. Well, meanwhile, here in Germany, Chancellor Olaf Scholz says he plans to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Chancellor Scholz has been facing pressure to take a tougher stance on Russia, with critics accusing Germany of being out of step with its allies in tackling the crisis. Olaf Scholz had been tight-lipped on Ukraine in recent weeks, at least in public. But on Wednesday evening, the new German chancellor broke his silence in an interview with public broadcaster ZDF, announcing a trip to Moscow. Of course, I've spoken to the Russian president, and we're diligently preparing everything that's necessary. I'm about to travel to the US. I'll also go to Moscow very soon to continue talking about the relevant questions. And it's all about acting in a coordinated manner as far as the EU and NATO are concerned. The German government says its goal is to avoid war in Ukraine by driving forward different diplomatic formats that also bring Russia to the negotiating table. Germany is refusing to follow the example of its allies like the US and is not sending weapons to Ukraine. That decision has been criticized by Ukraine and by Germany's Western partners. But the government's response in the case of a Russian invasion would be clear, said Scholz. The situation is very serious, and that's why it's so important that we're being very clear in what we say and what we prepare. Threatening the territorial sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine and attacking it militarily would have a very high price. 
and that price would include a potential stop to the controversial gas pipeline Nord Stream 2. For months, the German government called it a purely economic, not a political project. But now all options are on the table, says Scholz, and that implicitly includes Nord Stream 2. The biggest opposition party in Germany's parliament, meanwhile, considers Scholz's trip to Moscow long overdue. The CDU welcomes the decision by American President Joe Biden to send further troops to Europe, saying the escalation was not driven by NATO after all. No, we should ask Russia why they deploy more than 100,000 troops and by the end of February more than 150,000 troops, about 60% of their armed land forces. This is escalatory and it's quite clear that we Europeans are really nervous and we see this as an escalation without any need. The Russian embassy in Germany's capital. As tensions on Berlin's doorstep rise, the pressure on the German government to take on a more active role is growing. And we can take you now to the Ukrainian capital, to Kiev. DW correspondent Nick Conley is standing by. Uh, Nick, uh, we heard that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, will visit Moscow in person and meet with President Putin. He hasn't been to Kiev yet. Will that worsen what's already a strained bilateral relationship? Well, there definitely has been a precedent in recent years for German leaders, German ministers to stop by in Kiev, either on the way back or way to Moscow. And the fact that Kiev is not on his itinerary is obviously something that won't be welcomed here in Kiev. There's fears here that discussions are being held about Ukraine and its future without Ukraine at the table. That's become something of a mantra of Ukrainian diplomats. Um, so that's definitely something that they will be displeased about. But it's not a surprise. They have been very uh, open in their criticism of this new German administration, and particularly um, Olaf Scholz's Social Democratic Party, seeing them as too willing to accommodate Russia, too soft, as the Ukrainians would see it, on that Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which they see as part of Russia's hybrid warfare against them, rather than a um, economic uh, project with with no you know political implications. So that fits. But having said that, next week we are expecting a visit from Germany's Foreign Minister Bill Beerbock. So it's not as if diplomacy is fully uh, at an end uh, between Germany and Ukraine. Uh, now, let's talk about the Turkish uh, uh, president who is uh, now, as we speak, in Ukraine. How serious is this Turkish offer to mediate between Ukraine and Russia being taken in Kiev? I think it would be something that would be welcomed by the Ukrainians. Any uh, effort by a serious regional power to de-escalate is something that is being welcomed. I'm not sure they're making any big hopes that this is going to fly. So far, the signals coming from Moscow have been pretty negative. After all, Turkey is a NATO member, even though it has uh, closer security cooperation with Russia than most of the NATO members. So it's not really clear where this is going to lead, if it will happen. But it's certainly a diplomatic show of force, part of this blitz of uh, diplomatic visits to Kiev that have really you know, shown in the last few days that this is something that is very much on the radar of regional powers and of the West and is not something that is going to be allowed to happen without involvement from the outside. It's really an interesting balancing act that Turkey is trying to pull off there. Uh, it has been supplying drones to Ukraine, which, of course, Russia regards as highly provocative. Can they act as a broker in this crisis? Well, I think the, the issue is that Turkey does have very... Uh, 
in varied and very uh, profound links to Russia. They do a lot of trade, there's a lot of tourism going on. Uh, and as I mentioned, they have already bought Russian weapons from uh, Moscow against objections from Washington. So they have shown that willingness to disagree with NATO's largest member, the United States. Um, having said that, I, I think right now you get the sense from Moscow that the only people they're really willing to take seriously are the United States. This is a kind of Cold War format where Vladimir Putin wants to meet Joe Biden. And even if he is meeting Olaf Scholz in Moscow soon or will be meeting uh, Erdogan in Turkey in the next few days, for the Russians, the basic line is that this is about some kind of grand deal, grand bargain between Russia and the US about spheres of influence. Now, the US don't give the, any indication that they're willing to give that to the Russians, but certainly you don't get a sense that Moscow is very interested in talking to anyone but Joe Biden right now. Um, Nick, uh, my final question to you. There's been a, a string of world leaders uh, paying uh, their uh, paying visits to uh, Ukraine, to Kiev, uh, in a show of uh, solidarity. What has come out of these visits, and especially today's visit, you know, in terms of optics? Is it just a show of support, or did something more concrete come out of this? Well, President Erdogan does have some things up his sleeve. He has uh, a free trade deal that's being signed, but also uh, plans to build a factory so that Ukraine will be able to build those uh, Bayraktar drones for itself. There's going to be cooperation with Ukrainian arms manufacturers pr to provide uh, motors for those drones, um, engines, so that it would become a kind of Ukrainian-Turkish joint project. Those have really... Uh, shocked the Russians in their effectiveness. They were used the first time by the Ukrainian forces last autumn when Ukrainians said they came under fire by Russian-backed separatists. Moscow very wary about Ukraine being able to strengthen its army with the help of those drones. Um, so there's definitely a lot on the Ukrainian wish list when they come into contact with uh, President Erdogan. But the big picture remains that Ukraine has no potential membership of NATO or the EU on the horizon anytime soon. So Ukraine is painfully aware of the fact that if Russia were to uh, launch an invasion of its country, Ukraine would largely be on its own with only supplies of weapons and maybe money and sanctions uh, from the West and from Turkey as support. Nick Conley reporting from Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. And we have more breaking news that we want to tell you about this one out of Washington. U.S. President Joe Biden says the leader of the so-called Islamic State has died during a targeted raid by U.S. forces in Syria. Senior U.S. officials say Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi blew himself up as the operation got underway in the northwest of the country. President Biden is expected to make a statement within the next hour. And we will be carrying that live for you as soon as it gets underway. In the meantime, here with me is my colleague, William Glucroft, who has been following developments. So, William, what more have you learned? Well, I think, first of all, you know, the, as they say, truth is always the first casualty of war. And we should always be careful of what we're hearing when it comes to these highly secretive, highly COVID op covert operations. But what we are hearing from President Biden and from other U.S. officials is that the current leader of IS was killed in this raid in the early overnight hours, Syria time, local time. Um, the raid took about three hours. Uh, about two dozen special forces troops were on the ground, backed up by helicopters and jets and drones. So by special forces operation standards, a fairly extensive operation. And the fact that they're putting American troops on the ground in harm's way 
suggests that it was a high-value target, although U.S. officials at first were not saying who that target was. Now, multiple sources, uh, human rights observers on the ground, they were saying 13 people, including women and children, may have been killed in that raid. But again, U.S. officials are saying that was due um, to al-Hashimi Karashi's own detonation of a bomb that he was carrying. Now, it's a bit of deja vu, as some of your viewers, our viewers might know. Uh, the previous IS uh, leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, he was killed in 2019 in almost the exact same place, in almost the exact same way, U.S. Special Forces raid that ended with him blowing himself up and people around him. That's kind of where we're at right now. And so we're expecting to hear from President Biden momentarily? Exactly. He's, he says he put out a statement earlier today uh, discussing, you know, a successful counterterrorism operation. Here's his statement right now. He's saying to protect the American people and the ally, and allies, making the world a safer place, uh, thanking U.S. troops. There's a very brief statement, and he says that he's going to come out soon with a statement, uh, a public statement, uh, an address to the American people. Okay, well, we'll be carrying his remarks uh, live here at DW News. William, thank you for now. We'll sure. catch up later. Thanks. Let's bring you up to speed with the other stories making world news today. Benny Gantz has become the first Israeli defense minister to visit Bahrain. It's the latest high-profile diplomatic trip since the country's normalized ties. Israel's reconciliation with several Arab nations breaks with decades of Arab League consensus against recognizing Israel until it signs a peace agreement establishing a Palestinian state. New Zealand will begin reopening its borders in phases starting at the end of February. Fully vaccinated citizens and visa holders from Australia will be allowed in first. Under the new rules, vaccinated citizens entering the country will be allowed to quarantine at home instead of at a managed isolation facility. The United Kingdom and Denmark are among the first European countries to lift most of their coronavirus restrictions. Despite relatively high case numbers, their governments have decided the virus now poses less of a risk to citizens and public health systems. But while many are hoping this could be a step towards life beyond the pandemic, some businesses are choosing to keep taking precautions. And experts are warning the virus is still unpredictable. Packed pubs in London as people meet for a drink after work, just like they did before the pandemic. A cherished tradition revived even as the coronavirus is still wafting through the air. If we're being eased into that now and it's and it's working, I think it's I think it's okay and I think it's happy. It's lovely coming out without having to move. <laughs> well, I've had my three vaccines, so you know. I do, have you had COVID, SJ? I had it really early on, right, and I'm fully vaccinated with my booster, and I do feel very safe. Almost all restrictions in the UK have been lifted. The vaccination rate is high, especially among older people. New infections are decreasing and hospitals are admitting fewer patients, but some still urge caution. It has always demonstrated its ability to surprise us. Now, there are some that have this idea that in some way viruses tend to evolve to become less dangerous. That's actually not based on any good historical evidence. And it's perfectly possible that another one will come along that is more severe. Businesses are now free to write their own rules. At this hair salon, employees are supposed to still wear a mask. We're doing so to make you feel more comfortable. If you'd rather not, that's absolutely fine as a client. Sit down, don't wear a mask. Again, whatever makes you happier. 
The government is already planning its final phase. From mid-March, those with COVID-19 will no longer have to self-isolate. Meanwhile, in Denmark, restored freedoms are being welcomed too. Designers Søren Le Schmidt and his team are making final preparations before Fashion Week starts in Copenhagen. Mask-free and test-free. I am so happy that we can come together again and celebrate fashion. Many Danes are relaxed about restrictions having been lifted a second time. More than 80% of the population is double vaccinated. More than 60% has had a booster. There are far fewer patients in hospital ICUs. But the number of new infections remains high. A problem for schools and daycare centers, which are struggling to stay open due to severe staff shortages. The government is warning people not to underestimate the virus in spite of the freedom. That's why, here too, many businesses are voluntarily maintaining some precautions. And today we reached a milestone in the pandemic. And my colleague Amir Nassif will walk you through the story. Take it away, Amir. That's right, Leila. It's a number that seemed like a long shot when the vaccine campaign started. But here we are, 10 billion doses have been administered globally in just over one year. That includes first, second and booster doses. And it translates to roughly 127 doses per 100 people on the planet. But distribution has been unequal. On average, countries in Asia, Europe, North and South America have distributed about 150 shots per 100 people, with the exceptions of war-torn countries like Yemen and Afghanistan. And in Asia and Bulgaria and Europe, uh, which are far below the average for their regions. Now in Africa, the picture looks completely different. This is where the global vaccine gap is felt the most. Um, taking the continent at a whole, on a, as a whole, it's only distributed about 28 vaccines per 100 people who live there. Now zooming in, Central Africa is the least vaccinated region in the world. Uh, many countries um, have vaccinated less than 10 people per 100 people. Tanzania has given out only four shots per 100 people. And you can see uh, the DR Congo in Eritrea, less than one shot per 100 people, so virtually no one. Now, it's important to note that these 10 billion doses include second, third, and even fourth shots for the same people. That's important because the World Health Organization says it's partly why there's such a global vaccine gap. They're warning healthy countries against giving more and more booster shots to healthy younger adults, while so much of the world is struggling to even distribute a first shot. So it's a big milestone, Leila, but still a long way to go until everyone in the world has had one shot of uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. Remarkable. We're in a third year and still so much inequity. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I'm in. Let's take a look at some of the other developments in the pandemic. Germany's Vaccine Commission has recommended a second COVID-19 booster. That's a fourth shot to be given to at-risk groups. Well, that includes the over 70s, those with compromised immune systems and health care workers. Sweden announced it will lift pandemic restrictions next Wednesday. The prime minister said the hospital system was coping well despite a high number of infections. And in Bali, Indonesia, is welcoming back its first international flights in nearly two years. A dozen passengers are set to arrive from Tokyo on Thursday. Vaccinated tourists must still quarantine for five to seven days upon entry. 
Tonga has gone into lockdown after confirming a number of COVID-19 cases. The Pacific Island nation is still recovering from a devastating volcanic eruption and massive tsunami last month. Well, before the disaster, Tonga was COVID-free. Ships bringing aid are likely to have carried the virus to the islands. All is quiet on the streets of the Tongan capital, Nuku'alofa. Images reminiscent for many around the world of the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. But for residents here in Tonga, the measures to deal with COVID-19 are now necessary. There is a lockdown, uh, and I think it's a good thing. Uh, we need to be tracking uh, and, and, and doing tracing uh, of, of, of those who were in contact with the, with the first two uh, uh, COVID cases. Tonga entered a lockdown after several COVID-19 cases were discovered. It's thought that ships bringing aid may be how the coronavirus reached the country's shores. The South Pacific nation was previously corona-free. It's another blow to Tongans who are still struggling to deal with the aftermath of a catastrophic volcanic eruption in January. But there is some hope. Over 80% of people over the age of 12 are fully vaccinated. The lockdown, which only permits essential services to remain open, will be reassessed by the Tongan government every 48 hours. Emergency crews in Ecuador are continuing to search for people still missing after deadly flooding and mudslides in the capital, Quito. The country is observing an official period of mourning after at least 24 people were killed in what's being described as the heaviest rainfall in two decades. And we're supposed to have a piece for you there, but we'll, um, we're having some technical issues, so we'll, we'll air it a little later on in our next bulletin. Meanwhile, I want to pivot now to Facebook because uh, shares in Facebook uh, and uh, owner Meta plunged by around 20% in after-hours trading on Wednesday, knocking, get this, a massive $200 billion off the company's value. Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg had warned investors in a call earlier that Meta expected uh, first quarter revenues to decline due to competition from rivals like TikTok. If the stock doesn't rebound before trading resumes on Thursday, it will rank as the worst day in the company's 10-year stock market tenure and one of the biggest one-day falls of any company on record. Okay, lots to discuss. Uh, Stephen Bersley is here from DW News. Stephen, how do you lose $200 billion with a B? Well, let's remember that, that valuations on the market are based on a company's, they're a bet on a company's future. And there are two things going on here. One is that Facebook had some very not good numbers, as you just talked about. The other thing that's going on here is that investors are very jittery right now because the Federal Reserve, which controls the overall monetary conditions in the U.S., says that it's going to raise interest rates over the next year. They don't know how many times it's going to be raised. They don't know to what level it's going to be raised. And so that cuts into company profits. And so right now, investors are trying to figure out what's going on and they're shifting money around. Um, and tech tends to be a loser. They had recovered recently, but then they saw these new numbers, they got jittery again, and they dumped Facebook pretty hard. At the core, Facebook is saying that it's 
daily average, daily active users actually fell, something that doesn't happen with Facebook. That happened in the fourth quarter. That was alarmed. Monthly active users are also tailing off in terms of growth and those revenue warnings for the first quarter. Uh, so very clear signals that things are not going necessarily in the right direction short term for Facebook. Um, what was the impact of, of, of Zuckerberg's gloomy message? Uh, to the investors? impact was that massive loss and then it was a ripple throughout the markets. And so right now we're seeing that other tech firms and social media firms are losing big. And that includes Spotify, that includes Amazon, Tesla. Uh, Snap is going to release its uh, numbers later today. And then we're going to see if that continues that slide or if maybe someone puts the brakes on. Again, volatility is really high in the markets right now as everyone tries to figure out which direction things are going. Tech had really been hit hard over weeks. Everyone was flooding away from tech. Then Google actually had some good results. Everyone came back in a little bit. Now they see what happened to Facebook. They're all flooding out. But I'm just wondering, uh, though, have social platforms just hit a wall in terms of Facebook? I mean, so many people around the world use Facebook. At a certain point, there's nobody left to use Facebook. You reach a level of saturation. Not necessarily they haven't hit a wall. Maybe with this growth model they have. There has been this expectation for a while that the unending growth was going to stop, right? That they're going to reach as many people as they could and that they weren't able to monetize properly who they had to meet market expectations. And that's what we're seeing perhaps now. They have to find ways to monetize what people are going to. If they're going to Instagram Reels and you can't get as much money out of that as you can the newsfeed, then you're going to have to figure out how to either get them to the newsfeed or how to make more money off the reels. That's their challenge right now is to figure out where are the users and how do we improve the product enough to make enough money off of it. Another thing, it's very hard advertising climate right now. Apple has changed some of its data sharing rules, which actually make it much, much harder for organizations like Facebook to share information with their advertisers. And now they're betting on Meta. Is, is that the way out for them? But that's only in the mid to long term, right? They are actually spending more for Meta. So their expenses are going up as they try and develop more with their product labs, virtual reality, things like that. So that is not a short-term solution. They are betting big on it in the future. All right. Stephen Bearsley from DW Business. Thanks for breaking it all down. Thank you. Go to Beijing. Belgian skeleton racer Kim Melemans has been taken to the Olympic Village in Beijing after an IOC intervention after she made an emotional appeal on Instagram. After testing positive on her arrival in the Chinese capital, Melemans was initially taken directly into isolation, where she then returned three consecutive negative PCRs. In the video, she described what happened when she was picked up from the isolation unit. We thought this meant I was allowed to return to the Olympic Village and will be treated maximum as a close contact. Um, on the way to the village, uh, we did not turn to the village, but the ambulance went to another facility where I am now. A visibly distressed athlete there. Well, after that video was published, the International Olympic Committee intervened to bring Melemans into the Olympic Village, where she nonetheless remains isolated from her fellow competitors. DW Sports correspondent Jonathan Crane is in Beijing for us to report on the Winter Games. And earlier today, he sent us this message on the bizarreness of life inside the Olympic bubble. It's been a very surreal experience, like nothing I've experienced before. From the moment we landed in Beijing on Tuesday, we were greeted at the airport by ground staff in hazmat suits, marshaled through every step of the airport from PCR tests to uh, customs and immigration. And then 
we had to wait in our hotel room for that all-important negative test result. Thankfully, I got it, which means uh, I can enter the bubble properly. But the bubble is effectively a city within this city. We can only be in the hotel or games venues. Special transport takes us in between. And as you can see behind me, the Olympic Stadium is there. This is as far as we can go within this media compound. We're gated off. We're watching the people on the other side. They're watching us. It's a really bizarre situation. Jonathan Crane there uh, reporting from uh, Beijing. And uh, let's go back to that story that I promised you from Ecuador, where emergency crews are continuing to search for people still missing after deadly flooding and mudslides in the capital, Quito. The country is observing an official period of mourning after at least 24 people were killed in what's being described as the heaviest rainfall in two decades. It's a major operation to clear the debris from destroyed buildings and blocked roads in Quito. And if possible, find any people trapped in homes and streets. It comes after intense rain which began on Monday and pounded the capital for more than 24 hours. It weakened a hillside and sent waves of mud flowing through the city. This man from Venezuela was in a small room he shared with other migrants when disaster struck. Suddenly the water hit us. The building broke in two and we ended up out the back. We fell down two floors and then we were swept away. A death announcement as residents face the reality of this sudden disaster. And the threat might not yet be over. Officials are not ruling out further landslides. Anything could still happen at the top part of the mountain. There could be more landslides. We'll continue monitoring the area with drones. This is all for our safety and to bring calm. But with the rain having subsided for now, rescue teams are grabbing the opportunity to search for survivors. New data released this week by Danish researchers shows that Greenland's massive ice sheet has lost enough ice in the past 20 years to cover the entire United States with half a meter of water. The Arctic is warming faster than any other place else on Earth, and ice melting 